So let's read the word of the Lord. James chapter 3. James is speaking, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. James here has given us an instruction, and as we've mentioned before, he is concerned with wisdom. Sometimes they've called James the book of Proverbs for the New Testament. It is his approach to practical wisdom. And we've mentioned that wisdom in the scripture is more than just a cognitive intellectual uh, speculation. It is more than just ideas. It is uh, the skills that are needed in good living righteous living, profitable living, healthy living, living that is whole and wholesome and that is giving. The book of Proverbs covers a large number of topics having to do with living and living well. And that's what James is urging upon us is as believers we need to do that. And in this passage, as we saw last week, he contrasts and spells out wisdom as wisdom from above and wisdom that is not from above. And the wisdom that is not from above, he describes in a threefold manner as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And we looked at kind of what that meant. The, the wisdom of this world, it is of this world, it is earthly, it is earthbound. It is time-bound. It cannot see over the horizon of time. It cannot see much beyond the parameters of its own personal experience. The wisdom that is earthly is bound up in all that man can see. It's from a man's perspective or a human perspective. It is wisdom that, that is um, void of an eternal perspective, but has very much a temporal uh, timeline and, and perspective and, and viewpoint. Wisdom that is, that is earthly is earthbound in the sense that it also is not uh, able to, to see deep nor to see high. To see that which is deep or to see that which is high. And there lies its limitations. It is not necessarily folly although it can degenerate into folly, but it's just not the wisdom that comes from, it's the wisdom that comes from introspection. It's the wisdom that comes from empiricism. That is observation, empirical observation. It is the wisdom that follows certain syllogisms of logic that the human mind has dictated to us. It's a wisdom sometimes that's just kind of a common way of thinking. It, it ebbs and flows with what society around us is thinking. It's a wisdom of this world. It is very earthly. But 
it is also, he says here in the text, it's called unspiritual. It's really the word psukekos, which means having to do with the soul. Not the soul as the deepest part of man, but soul really in the fleshly sense. In other words, just the human being. It's, it's wisdom that caters to and, and, and orient, is oriented around the flesh, around our natural, physical, and emotional appetites. It's a wisdom that is very much unspiritual in that it is not dealing with the innermost self or the higher most thoughts, but it is everyday wisdom that is basically looking for our comforts, our pleasures, our conveniences, and our own uh, ends and means. But it's worse than all that. It is a wisdom that is demonic. It comes from the pit of hell. We mentioned by way of illustration last week that Peter had wisdom from above and wisdom from the pit. On one occasion when Jesus was telling the disciples he was going to the cross, Peter said, never let it be. Forbid it. This should not happen. Let's not let it happen. And the Lord rebuked him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. That was wisdom. That was insight. That was perspective. That was from the pit. Happily, on another occasion, Peter confessed and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Lord said to him, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. That's wisdom from above. Wisdom from above involves revelation. It is someone that's speaking to us from outside of our fleshly and human, normal, natural existence. And that's what we have in the Scriptures. One of the things it says in the text is that these things lead to selfish ambition and there will be disorder and every vile practice. Every vile practice. The wisdom that is not from above will lead us to vile practices. I mentioned last week that John Bunyan, the great writer of the Pilgrim's Progress and Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and very influential in that era when our own Presbyterian Church was being formed uh, in the Westminster days in the mid-17th century in England. And Bunyan said that the soul of religion is the practical part. The soul of religion is the practical part. So by way of application this morning, I want to make an application along one line, and that is the application having to do with right to life. That which takes a look at abortion. And the reason I pick that one is this is Right to Life Sunday. In the other services, there'll be a testimony and there'll be some emphasis. But the passage that is often viewed to put the right perspective on the right to life is found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 139. You've already read this morning in our profession of our faith the, uh, about half of that psalm, and I want us to look at it. It is that famous and well-known place where the psalmist says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. What does the natural, the earthly, 
the demonic say about the little baby in the womb tries to tell us that that baby is a tissue mass, that that little one is not a human being, that that little one is simply a part of the expendable portion of a mother's body, that that fetus, that embryo, that zygote, does not have humanity, is not created in the image of God, and as a practical matter is simply part of a woman's body over which she has absolute control. That the feelings of her own desires, the circumstances of her life, are the material that she uses to make a decision about the viability and the life of that little one. Even though good science would tell us that that is as much a human being as a 75-year-old man. All the DNA is there. The cellular structure is ready to dictate everything that that little child will ever be. That's what a human being looks like at that age. A full and authentic human being looks like a single cell, a tiny tissue mass. And then the formations begin. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. The formation of all that is life. Not just the life that that little baby will enjoy, but everything about that baby. The accomplishment of that baby's days. What that baby is designed for. What that baby will say before that baby ever says it. Do you remember when we were reading, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written down every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. When there's nothing in the record book of life, there is already a knowledge of God. This particular psalm, by the way, is extremely and, and wonderfully contemplative. There are all kinds of psalms, as you know. And one of the psalms are the psalms where David muses, where he thinks, where he observes things of life and stares at the stars and gazes at the heavens and then looks at the terrestrial as well as the celestial and observes about life and has what I would call a, an inspired wonder. And looking at life 
That's what he sees. He sees that life is in God's hands, that life is a gift from God, and that God directs one's life. He talks about here, he says, um, before ever a word was on my tongue, you know it all together, you hem me in behind and before. That has a negative way of interpreting. In other words, God sort of boxes us in. Uh, Job cried out of his frustration, how he seemed to be just stuck where he was, and it was God that stuck him there, and God wouldn't let him loose and wouldn't let him up and wouldn't set him free. And he was trapped in that situation, in that body, and in that very, very negative and, and, and suffering predicament. And it says, you lay your hand upon me. That's the chastening of the Lord. That's also the guidance of the Lord. You lay your hand upon me. That's the protection of the Lord. The Lord knows our soul from its first formation and keeps us in his presence the whole way. One of the things David says, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. And then he speaks of the omnipresence of the Lord and the ubiquity of the Lord. Listen to this beautiful passage. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He says, I can go up, I can go down, I can go east, I can go west. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, that's the rising sun, the east, or dwell in the uttermost part of the sea. The sea was to the west of Israel. The Mediterranean was the west coast and beyond. They always saw the sun set across the vast ocean. Whether I go east or west, up or down, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no place that we can go to escape the presence of the Lord. It's not just the omnipresence of the Lord, but it is also the ubiquity. The ubiquity means that God is everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not. He is everywhere. But he is not everywhere in the sense that peanut butter is spread upon a slice of bread. He is everywhere in his wholeness and in his fullness. His, the entire divine presence is everywhere. He's not just spread over his creation and the infinity of space, but he is in it every place. And even in the depths of the earth, you do not hide from God. And that's where our ethical decisions are made. <laughs> the all-seeing eye of God, His omniscience over all. He spoke about, before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. It's not just that God is is omniscient, that is all-knowing, but he is prescient. He knows before it can be known. 
God does not have to scientifically observe and empirically record something with the optic nerve to be able to know it in its reality. God is infinite and pure spirit knows it all. And all of our ethical decisions are made in the framework. One of the things that has, that has um, brought caution to me in my life is that I know God is watching. Do I want to be caught in this circumstance? Do I want to be caught doing this? Do I want to be caught saying this? Do I want to be caught living this way? And oh, you may try to hide it, but the Lord sees it. His omniscience detects it. And His holiness detests it. And that's where we are in the right to life. What's going on? Where are we? What is the nature of this being that is in the womb of the mother? Where is God in this situation? What is he looking at? Here's what we need to know about making ethical decisions, living with divine wisdom, wisdom that is from above, wisdom that has the eternal perspective, wisdom that sees the unborn child as a genuine human being, a descendant of Adam and Eve created in the image of God, born for purpose and destiny, to make up the number of God's people. We need to know something about thoughts and God's thoughts and our thoughts are mentioned. And let me just point it out here toward the end of the text. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Thinking and understanding in the mind and the heart of God. What is God's viewpoint on that little life? What is God's perspective? What is the divine perspective on that, not miracle, very natural, but God-ordained birth of that baby and the life of that baby? And the sum of the days, the destinies of that baby. God's thoughts are precious. It may look like from the earthly, the fleshly, the earthbound perspective that this is a profound inconvenience. This may look like a, a, an absolute worst thing that can happen to a young mother or a young family. God's thoughts are precious. He views that little one as his. He views that little one as filling out the purposes that God has 
for him or her. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I am awake and I am still with you. The thoughts of God are precious. But the last portion of that psalm says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's the prayer of David, but it is the facts of the case. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Calling upon God to search our hearts is, is each of us getting in tune with God. He is searching our hearts. Are we hiding? Are we rebelling? Are we running? Are we ignoring? Are we flinching? When the searchlight of God's loving eye comes upon us in our ethical decisions and our moral decisions, God is already watching. It is only the heart that is open to the Lord, yielded to the Lord, forgiven by the Lord, redeemed by the Lord, healed and made whole by the Lord that is willing to say, search me, O Lord. I want your eye on my heart. That's the fine-tuned Christian conscience, is to be willing to have your every thought open to the Lord. Oh, can you see how and now we're kind of meddling a little bit. We're getting into, you know, our thoughts is the one place where we can keep it to ourselves. You know, we can, we can hide there. We can protect ourselves there. We can calculate there. We can make uh, known what we want. We can hold secret. What, but the Lord, before the Lord, it is open. Open and vulnerable before the Lord. Because what's God thinking about you? It's precious. It's loving. Lord finally had to say one time to the prophet, I know my thoughts of you. <laughs> I know what I think about you. I know what I think of you. It's thoughts of good and not for evil. It's thoughts of love. It's thoughts of mercy. It's thoughts of grace. So we open ourselves up to the Lord and have Him search our hearts. We're doing what the hymn writer says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It is the grace of God that teaches us the awesome, fearful, and wonderful commandments of God, the ethical standards, the moral imperatives of the life to live before God. Grace teaches our hearts to fear, and grace my fears relieved. <laughs> And that's finally what the psalmist says, and we'll close with that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any grievous way in me, 
If there be any evil outcome, if there be any dreadful sin, if there be any perverseness and any crookedness and malice and a whole list of things, if there is larceny in my heart, if there is murder in my heart, if there be any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Move me. Turn me. Bring me to a heart of repentance. Bring me to a heart of confession. And bring me to a heart of abandonment of my sin. And an openness to you.